Thanks for listening to the City Church Podcast. In this teaching series entitled Renaissance Man, we will look at the life of King David of Israel. From poet to prophet, warrior to ruler, sinner to saint, David's life reveals for us today the essence of godliness. For more information, visit www.ourcitychurch.org. So the first week as we looked at David's life, we looked at probably the most famous story in the Bible, right? Where David fights Goliath, yeah. And so he fights Goliath, and, uh, and we looked at what does it mean to have biblical courage. And then last week, we looked at this huge time span between the time that he's anointed to be king and the time that he actually becomes king. And it's 15 years before he becomes king, or actually more like 13 years before he becomes king of Judah. And then seven years later, he becomes king of all of Israel. And so it's 20 years total before he actually becomes the king that God promised that he would be. And so we talked about what does it mean to wait in the meantime. Did God speak to you last week? Don't break that chair, Chief. Did God speak to you last week? Okay, good. So uh, if you got uh, just a moment, would you just bow your head and pray with me? And, uh, and let's just open our hearts to God. If you're new to church, if you're new to the Bible, uh, that's okay. We'll kind of fill you in as we go. And, uh, and this is just an opportunity to ask God this morning to speak to us. We believe in a God who speaks today. So Jesus, we pause from all the busyness of our lives, from opportunities to go to the beach and opportunities to see friends and lunch appointments and work and on and on and on, all the things we do in life, we pause and we consecrate and sanctify this time in the morning to study the Bible together as a church, to worship your name. I pray that God, as we look at David's life, that we would not just see an ancient king, but that we would see Jesus, that we would see what it means to be godly, that we would see what it means to be more like you. We open up our hearts to you today. Would you speak to each of us in a unique way? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you'd like to take notes, I encourage you to do that if you'd like. And uh, today's sermon is called, This is How We Worship. This is How We Worship. Let me just ask you a simple question to start us off this morning. When was the last time you can remember a circumstance in which you were all in? When was the last time you can remember a circumstance? Maybe it was a costume party and you just like went all in. You know what I'm saying? Like you really went for it. Or maybe it was a sports event and you just went all in for that sports event and just just wanted to win so bad. Or maybe it was a job, you know, a project that you're working on at work and you just decided, you know what? I'm going to get this done. I don't care if it takes me till two in the morning. I'm going to do it. You were just all in. Maybe it was when you were at the gym the other day and you just decided. Maybe it was when you were thinking about going to the gym but never ended up actually going. But either way, you know, when you're all in. I was thinking about back through the years, a story I haven't told in a while, and so maybe you've heard it before, but I did want to share it just as a context for today. Back when I was in high school, one year in high school, you had the opportunity of opting out of gym class and opting into something that they called Project Adventure at my school. And so Project Adventure was a year long of adventurous activities outside. So you'd climb trees, you'd swing off ropes, you'd, you know, belay and unbelay, you'd do all those type of things. And so I thought that would be a blast, you know, it sounded like a lot of fun, and I was kind of tired of playing bad and you know everything else that you do in gym year after year and so I said yeah let me join up Project Adventure so me and some of my friends got involved with this Project Adventure and at the end of the entire year of uh, different activities that you would do the very end was this huge obstacle course and at the end of the obstacle course was a uh, what do you call those things when you hook on you swing like this 
zipline, thank you, a zipline. And so uh, there was this great zipline, okay? And so me and some of my friends finished the whole obstacle course early, and we're just sitting in the grass, hanging out, watching kids go down the zipline, right? And so the teacher in that, uh, in that class was a pretty, uh, pretty free individual. He'd let you do just about anything you wanted, you know? And so, and so we're just hanging out, and we're, we're, you know, whatever, just talking. And, and one of my friends leans over to me, and he says, hey, have you done the Superman? And I looked at him, I said, well, what's the Superman? And he said, man, the Superman is when you put your harness on backwards and you hook the zip line to your back and you jump off like this. And I thought to myself, you'll die if you do the Superman. <laughs> and I remember, as clear as day, I can remember this kid, Matt, looking me in the face and going, you need to do the Superman. Now all the peer pressure kicks in, you know what I mean? Like, Superman, do the Superman, do this. So I was like, fine, I'll do the Superman. So I climb up there, and I get up there, and I strap my, my harness on backwards, and I'm trying to hook the belay to the back of the harness. This is, I mean, don't try this at home. And so I'm hooking on my belay, and it's like tugging me forward, you know? And so I'm like, I don't know, 40, maybe 250 feet up, something like that. In my mind, it was 250 feet. And, you know, and so I'm getting pulled, and I'm looking, and, and I'm looking down all my friends, like, what do it, do it. And, you know, and the, and the zip line's kind of tugging me forward, and I'm thinking, you know, all right, I don't have any kids yet. I haven't gotten married yet. You know, this could be it for me. And so as the, all the pressures and the tensions, obviously, you know, I didn't die this moment, uh, all the pressures and the tensions of the kids down below and everything else. And, and it wasn't just that I wanted to do it for them. I didn't want to do it for them. I wanted to do it for me. I wanted to do it because I have always wanted to fly. Can somebody say amen? I always wanted to fly. And I've had dreams about flying, you know, and I've watched the Rocketeer movie with my kids this week. And I just had this desire to fly, you know. And so uh, you guys remember that? That movie anyways watch it it's awesome old disney movie and so anyways i hooked this thing up and right there in the midst of you know the backyard of my school i jumped and i can remember that moment where it was just like i'm flying and i just sort of and then i and then i i finished and it was like hey how do i get down now you know you're kind of stuck like this and so i had to have some friends come and help me down but it was an incredible experience the freedom of flying and there's just something about being all in about being all in you can turn to this person next to you and just ask them are you all in are you all in? Go ahead and ask them. Are you all in? Because for most of us, we live our lives only partway in. We don't know the experience, the adrenaline, the freedom, the joy of being all in to anything. So I found some people who are all in, and I snagged their picture off the internet. So go ahead and throw that first one up there. There's the first guy. He is all in. I mean, come on. He's a little flabby. That's the next guy. He is like so all in. He is just stoked. That guy is a little too far in, in my opinion, but he is all in, and then I don't know if that is male or female, but she is definitely, or he, it is definitely all in, right? And so people are all in in various ways. That wasn't for a movie. That was for a live-action role-playing, okay? And so they just get dressed up, and if that's your thing... You know, that's your thing, whatever. But, but some of us, you know, we're all in with our car and we like wax it and talk to it and, you know, do all these different things. Others of us, we're all in with our job and we just throw ourselves into our job and it's all we think about. For others of us, we're all in with a sport and we know every single statistic of this baseball player or this basketball player. We're all in with something. And then there's others of us that are here today that you're not all in with anything. You're kind of just half in with a hundred different things. Now, I want to suggest to you this morning that as human beings, we are actually created to be worshipers, that there's something deep inside of you that longs to worship, that longs to celebrate 
that longs to experience a freedom and a joy in God. And the creator of the universe is the one in whom our hearts long to worship. Now, as Christians, we believe that God loves us so much that he actually became a man, lived a perfect life, was a representative for the human race, became a substitute for our sins, took our sin uh, for us, died on a cross that he did not deserve, then rose again, conquering death for us and filling our hearts with his spirit, forgiving us of all of our sins. And so if there was ever something that was so exciting and so audacious and so incredible that it would require or demand of us our full worship and allegiance, it seems to me that it would be Jesus, that it would be the scriptures and that it would be God. And yet it's interesting to me that even those that attend church every week, even those that read their Bibles on a consistent basis, which of course in our culture is certainly the exception rather than the rule, so many of us at the same time struggle to be all in. You know what I mean? Like struggle to be all in, like we have these times of singing, and you're like, well, I mean, I don't want to raise my hands because I'm tired, so I'm not, I'm, you know, I'll raise my hands at a football game, but I won't raise my hands at church, or I don't want to sing because I'm just not that good of a singer, and so I'm just going to sit here like this. <laughs> but I'm all in, I really am. No, you're not, right? You're not all in, and so there's something inside of us that just, that just hesitates, that just hesitates, that just is, you know, uh, concerned about really being all in. And here's what I know. I know that if you want to get close to God, if you want to experience the reality of who God is and you want to actually know who he is, right on the other side of that hesitation is just a geyser of joy and life and peace and hope. But you got to get all in. You got to go. You can do one more time. Turn to the person next to you. Just ask him, are you all in? Are you all in? Come on. Are you all in? This is how we worship. And so we've been walking through this series on David, right? And we're going to see an experience today where David's devotion is just, is just explosive. And so I mentioned that we started with this idea of David, the courageous one. And then we looked at David in the meantime. And we saw all of David's sins, right? He's not a perfect man. But after, <clears throat> excuse me. 20 years of waiting to become king, he finally does become king. And his first uh, act as a king is to re, uh, realign the nation. And he makes Jerusalem the capital city, okay? And so he overthrows the people living in Jerusalem, and he makes Jerusalem the nation's capital, which is really central, drawing together Israel and Judah. And then the first thing he does in Jerusalem is return the Ark of the Covenant. I know what all of you just thought when I said that. Dun, 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 right? Yeah, the Ark of the Covenant. So for most of us, we hear the Ark of the Covenant, and there's very little we know about it, except that it's stored in a warehouse somewhere that the U.S. government's not telling us, right? That's the only thing that we really think about or know about when it comes to the Ark of the Covenant. So let me just back up and share a little bit about this box, because it's important for us to understand what worship is through the context of this story, if we're going to understand what David is doing in this passage of Scripture we'll look at in just a second. So the Ark of the Covenant was originally designed through the Holy Spirit by Moses, right? And so back in the time when God gave the law to Israel, he used Moses to articulate what was required of Israel, and God told them to build a box, right? Four feet long, two and a half feet wide, two and a half feet deep. And it has a lid on top of it, and they called the lid the mercy seat. And the lid had an angel on the head and on the, on the end of the, of the lid. And so there's these angels overlooking the Ark, right? And that, that 
then that's the lid, the mercy seat, and then there's the box. It's made of wood overlaid in gold, okay? And so uh, I got a photo of it. We don't know exactly what it looks like, but this is somewhat what it looks like. You see there's these two poles, right? And the poles are what were used to carry the ark, okay? You can take that down, but that just gives you kind of an idea. Now, what's inside the ark? Inside the ark, the scripture teaches are three things. Stay with me this morning. The first thing that they tell us is inside the ark is manna. Now, if you remember the story in the Old Testament, when the people of Israel were starving in the wilderness, God drops bread from heaven and they call it, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? And so they're so surprised that God has provided for them in a miraculous way from heaven that they jarred some of that manna up and kept it in the ark to remember God's blessing. The second thing in the ark is Aaron's staff. Okay. Now, if we're new to church and religion, it's like, who, what, what is it? So in the times of Moses, God required that there would be a high priest to make a sacrifice for the people of Israel. And Aaron was chosen to be that high priest. But the people of Israel debated whether or not he should be, in fact, the high priest. And so God spoke to Moses and said, take all of the the staffs of the leaders of Israel and put them in the tent and then pray and wait for the night. And the next day come in and one of those staffs is going to blossom or bloom with, with, uh, with, you know, with fruit. And so in this case, almonds. And so uh, they come back the next day and Aaron's staff had actually budded and produced almonds. Okay. And so it's an amazing miracle. They took that staff and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant. Okay. Third thing they put in the Ark of the Covenant was the law. These were the tablets that the 10 commandments were written on. Okay. So you got the law, you've got the manna, you've got the staff of Aaron. Turn to the person next to you and just ask him, you doing okay so far? You know, guys, of our didn't come here for a history lesson. All right, so that was a little bit intense. So, all right, so that's what's in the ark, right? Now, what we realize through this story is that God teaches through pictures. And if you want to understand how God teaches, you've got to learn the pictures that he's using. And so the Ark of the Covenant is not just a holy box. It's not just a box that kills the Nazis. That's not the essence of the Ark. The Ark is a picture or a type of God's presence, all right? It, it illustrates for us the presence of God. And so we're going to learn through this story how to bring the presence of God into the capital city of your heart, okay? That's what David teaches us in this story, how to get God's presence in the center. You ready? Everybody doing okay? Okay, here we go. Verse uh, chapter 6, verse 1 of 2 Samuel. You know that already through this story, David has become king. You can read that on your own if you'd like. Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4 explain all that. And so David has become king of both Judah and then Israel. And now as uh, king, he takes over Jerusalem. And then after taking over Jerusalem, here he goes. He's going to bring the ark back into the capital city. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out to the house of Abinadab, which, by the way, you know, uh, you can thank me later for learning how to say all these names, which was on the hill. And Uzzah of Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. I just make them up. And the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. Five. And David, with all the house of Israel, were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So they were singing. They were having a huge celebration. So all this looks good, right? Everything's good. We got 30,000 people, everybody celebrating. David's bringing the ark. Now, if you go back in the history, you learn that the Ark of the Covenant, which represented God's presence, was neglected by the previous king, Saul. Saul was a wicked king who pursued selfish ambition, and he did not care about the ark, so he left it in the home of Abinadab. Now, David wants to bring it to the capital city. And so David now is bringing it back in. Everybody's excited. Everyone's thrilled, but there's just one little problem. 
The little problem is that they're carrying the ark on a cart with oxen. Now, to us, that may not mean very much, but this was the way that the Philistines actually transported the ark when they stole it. They took it, and they put it on a cart with oxen. And so the natural human way to transport this thing was just throw it on a cart and get it moving. But God had outlined a very specific, very unique, and very important way to transport his presence. Because remember, the ark is a picture of something much deeper. And so God says, you can't transport the ark on a bunch of oxen. You have to transport my presence in a very specific way. See, the ark was a revelation of God's presence, and God is holy. And because God is holy, he cannot be in direct connection with a human being who is sinful. The scripture says that the holiness of God is perfect. It's indescribable. And because God is so perfectly holy, if he is in contact, if his tangible presence is in contact with a human being who has sin in their heart, that human being cannot live because no sin can live in his presence. And so we're given these specific instructions for how the ark must be transported. It says that you put two poles in the sides of the ark you get four consecrated priests and they carry the ark on their shoulders but david ignores this we don't know exactly why maybe he was just to you know convenient it goes faster if you get it on a cart or maybe he was ignorant but uh but regardless he decides that he's not really gonna pay attention see this is very very important god provides a path to interact with his holiness but david ignores it so look what happens in verse six and seven check it out and when they came to the threshing floor of nakin Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Now, we already know, according to Scripture, in in the book of Numbers, it says that no man can touch the ark, right? That if it represents God's presence, you can't take it lightly and have sinful hands touch the ark. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Whew, right? I mean, this is one of those Old Testament stories that's just like, dang, right? He's dead. See, God is illustrating through this story, and it's real life thousands of years ago. We truly believe that, that he is holy, and you cannot take his requirements lightly. Now, for many of us, this this generates all types of confusion and frustration, so we'll get to that in a second. But if you want to know freedom in real worship, if you want to know how to be all in with God, the first thing you have to do, and I'm going to give you three today if you want to jot them down, is you must learn how God operates. You must learn how God operates. See, David had the opportunity and the potential to know how God operates. All he had to do was review the law that was given to him through Moses, but instead he ignores it and he decides to do things his own way and it brings God's judgment upon the nation. And so you must learn how God operates. Now look what happens next in the story, verse eight. And David was angry because the Lord burst forth against Uzzah and that place was called Pera Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Why is that funny? That's a normal name, right? Hi, I'm Obed-Edom the Gittite, you know? So that's what happens. So interesting that when David experiences the judgment of God, what are the two things he starts to feel? Anger and fear, right? I want to suggest to you today that if you're feeling anger towards God, why did he have to let her die? Why did he have to let him get sick? Why did my parents have to be that way? God, why did I have to deal with that? If you're feeling anger towards God or fear, 
God, I just feel like he's always angry at me. I feel like he's going to just always kill me. I feel like I don't know what he's going to do. If you have those two feelings towards God, let me suggest to you today that the root of the problem is a misunderstanding of his nature. That you are misunderstanding God's nature. Now, God is holy, but his wrath is not unpredictable and it's not rash. His wrath is clearly outlined for those who will ignore his path to interact with his holiness. God says, I'm perfectly holy, but I'm also a God of relationship. I want to know you. And so I will lay out for you a path by which you can interact with the holy God, but you cannot ignore that path. And for some of us, if we ignore that path, we end up thinking that God is something that he's not. And that's exactly what happened to David. But David wised up. And the scripture tells us in 1 Chronicles 15 that he actually went back and he changed the plan. And he went back and he said, okay, guys, hold on, hold on. I know I ignored it the first time, and that's why the wrath of God came forth, but we're going to do it the way God says. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant is a picture. It's a type. God was doing all this, the New Testament tells us, to show us something better. And we'll get to that in just a second. But he says, okay, now we're going to do it God's way, okay? And so they get the Levites. They consecrate them. They set themselves apart. They get the poles. They stick them through the sides of the Ark. They carry it on their backs, and they come into Jerusalem the second time now because they've learned, okay, Okay, this is how we must interact with God's holiness. Pick it up in verse 11. Here we go. And David and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went up and brought the ark of God to the house of, from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Verse 13, and, those, and when those who, were, who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. So you see that God is now speaking to David that he was doing things the wrong way. And this is incredible about David. I really think this is something we should pause and consider. Because David ignores God's operation, right? The way he operates, he's ignorant of it. And so he doesn't know how God operates. And so it leads to an inaccurate uh, communication with God. And because he doesn't know how God operates, there's end up, there end up coming judgment upon the people. But now David, in his humility, you know, he was embarrassed, right? 30,000 people gathered for his big celebration, and it all blew up, right? He was angry. He was fearful. But in the midst of all those tensions and struggles, David has the humility and the courage to go back, change his ways of doing things, repent, and bring that presence of God into the center of the city. See, if we want to learn how to really experience God, we must learn how he operates. But then once we understand, you can't back off. You have to, and this is number two, you have to press in. You have to press in. See, for many of us, we've understood how God operates through the gospel and through what the Bible teaches about his operations. And we'll get to that in just a second. But we understand how God operates, but then we never press in. We never press in. Now, what does that phrase mean, press in? I remember hearing that as a young man, just getting involved with church and the Bible. I remember hearing people say, you know, you just got to press in. I thought, what does press in mean? Press in, focus in, give yourself. There's an incredible passage in Jeremiah 29 where God says that you will seek me, don't miss this this morning, and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. I want to suggest to you that the inverse would also be true, that you will seek me and not find me when you search for me with half your heart. You will seek me and not find me when you search for me with two-thirds of your heart. You will seek me and not find me when you search for me with 99% of your heart. In other words, what God is saying is you got to be all in. 
You got to be all in if you want to experience my tangible presence. If you want to know me, if you want to understand how I think, if you want to walk with your creator, you have to press in. Turn to somebody and just tell them, press in. Come on, press in, press in, press in. Wake up, pay attention, press in, press in. So now David's pressing in, right? He's understood how God operates. He's following God's commands, and he's pressing in. Let's look what happens next. Verse 14, and David danced before the Lord. Look at that next phrase, with all his might. It doesn't say half his might. It doesn't say two-thirds of his might. It says that with all his might. One translation says with reckless abandonment. Another translation says with all his strength. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the horn. So they are partying. Verse 16, look what happens next. And the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw David, this is David's wife, leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Bummer, right? So he's out there. He's finally at this place where on the inside, he understands how God operates. He's pressing in, and now he's just all in with all of his heart. He's just worshiping, and there's always somebody who's the cynic, right? You're a fake. You're ridiculous. How can you do that? So look what she says to David when he finally comes home, verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So she's embarrassed. Now, you, uh, you read the history of this, and David wasn't naked, okay? He wasn't out there in the, in, the, you know, in the nude dancing around, all right? He was covered in a linen ephod. It was just the common garb of a Levite. And so he's out there dancing in common clothes with slave girls, okay? And so in those days, really only the girls were the ones that were going to do the big dancing celebrations, right? And so David's out there spinning around with slave girls, and he's the king of Israel. It means he took off his crown. It means he took off his robe. And Michal his wife is a little disappointed she's like dave you have a reputation you're supposed to look a certain way you're supposed to present yourself a certain way and you're out there just being wild and dancing and being crazy that's not what you're supposed to do don't you understand you're a professional you sell insurance right i mean come on right you own a business don't you understand you're in the medical you can't be dancing around like a crazy person at church you can't have your hands up you can't you can't even sing Close your mouth. You're terrible. Don't you realize that you're somebody that's supposed to be a person of prestige, a person of importance? You can't look like that in front of the common folk. That's her problem with David. That's her concern. And I love David's response. It speaks of the third thing that's going on inside of him. Stay with me today. Verse 21, and David said to Michal, it was before the Lord. Don't you? Look at that phrase. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince of Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make merry before the Lord, and I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. In other words, he's saying, I don't care what you think of me. And one translation, the NIV says, I'll become even more undignified than this. He says, I'll become even more undignified. I don't care what you think of me because you don't realize I understand how God operates. I know him. I understand his heart. I understand that he's both holy and relational. I understand that he wants to be in relationship with me, but he's created a specific pathway by which I can be in relationship with him. And I followed that pathway and I've pressed in. And as I've pressed in, I've begun to experience what it feels like to be all in. And now that I'm all in, you can begin the third aspect of true worship before God. And it's just simply this you lose yourself 
You lose yourself. No longer are you focused on what people think of you. No longer are you focused on how cool you are or who's paying attention to you or if you're a professional or not. You can just sing and lift your hands and even dance and jump and do whatever your heart wants to because you just love God. And you experience the physical freedom of that. I wonder if you've ever felt all in in a corporate gathering. I wonder. You know, I know for myself, as a young follower of Jesus, as a teenager, I got invited to a friend's house, and we would have these prayer meetings where 10 of us or so would gather and pray. And I remember they would sometimes go an hour or two hours or three hours. I remember in these prayer meetings, my heart, I would just lose myself. I would just be all in. I would just allow my heart to totally focus on God. I didn't care if I sounded good, if I looked good. I didn't care about any of it. I just cared about honoring God. And you know, a guy can paint himself blue and yellow and have a flabby chest out in a cold football game, or a person can wear this ridiculous a costume like a king and pretend like he killed somebody with a plastic sword they're all in and yet christians come to church and they're timid and afraid and they concern themselves with what people think of them and they never understand what are we doing during these songs is it just karaoke time are we just here to celebrate is it so that the musicians can impress people is that what we're doing or is it possible that this is a divine opportunity for every one of us to just lose ourselves before god to tell him that he's great to sing our hearts out to him and to worship, you got to lose yourself. So David provides us with a roadmap for how we can be honest, how we can be vulnerable, how we can be worshipers of God, how we can be all in. So first, like David, you got to learn how God operates, okay? This is good. Stay with me today. You got to learn how God operates. So if you want to be all in, you have to learn how God operates. Now, in the God, the God that is revealed to us in Scripture is a God who is holy, right? And the Old Testament provides a pathway to interact with his holiness. Now, that pathway was his law, right? He describes in his law how to interact. But the Scripture teaches that the law was to draw people to a place of a need for God, where they realized that they were sinners. And so that pathway of the Old Testament is actually a symbol or a picture to point you to a better covenant, to point you to what the New Testament describes as the gospel, right? And so this new agreement that God makes with humanity in Jesus is actually displayed in shadows through the old covenant, okay? And so you look at this ark. It's a picture of something much better. And my prayer today is that the light comes on because one of the greatest reasons you can place your faith in Christ and you can begin to trust in this Bible, trust in the truths of the scriptures is that God's written the story again and again and again in pictures. And when you begin to see the nuanced complexity of his glorious story, faith will start to rise in your heart. And so this picture of the ark is not about a box covered in gold. It's not about some hocus pocus. It is a actual image of what God would do later. And so inside the ark, were three things, right? Everybody remember the three things that were in the ark? This, there's going to be a test afterwards, so just think about this. Three things. The first thing was the manna, right? The manna was inside the ark. This was bread from heaven that sustained the people of Israel through the wilderness, okay? So bread to get you through life, the sustenance of life. That's the first thing in the ark. Second thing in the ark was the evidence of the priesthood, right? Aaron was the high priest, the one who could make a sacrifice for the people. And so the, the, the staff that budded displayed that Aaron truly was the high priest, so evidence of the priesthood was the second thing in the ark. And then the third thing in the ark was the law, the perfect moral law of God written in 10 commandments on stone. And so those three things were in the ark. So three things in one box, right? So there's three revelations in one box, in one container, right? Now, David wasn't the first king of Israel, right? 
Everybody knows this, right? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. David wasn't the first king of Israel. The first king of Israel was, anybody know? Anybody know? Saul, right? The first king of Israel was Saul. So the first king of Israel was selfish, pursued his own ambitions, and because of that, he disqualified himself, and God had to raise up a king from obscurity, a second king, right? And it was the second king that first became the king of Judah, a remnant, and then became the king after seven years. Now, in the Bible, numbers mean things, and I'm not trying to get into all number, you know, jumber, but the, the seven always means completion. It always means fulfillment. And so after seven years of waiting, the scripture says, after he was the king of Judah, the remnant for seven years, somebody's light's coming on, he then becomes the king of all of Israel, right? And so all of this, friends, is a picture. See, Jesus wasn't the first king of humanity. See, the first king of humanity was a guy named Adam, a guy who represented the whole human race. And the first king of humanity, he did just what Saul did. He forfeited his right to be a king so that he could selfishly pursue his own ambitions. And God takes away his kingdom and gives it to someone that he plucks out of obscurity. And that someone was Jesus. And Jesus came as the representative, first the king of the remnant, the church. And then after the years of completion, he will return to be the king of all the earth, you see the whole story of the gospel right here in Jesus. See, Jesus is the manna. In John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. You got to see, it's a picture. This bread is my flesh, and I'll give it, for, uh, give my life for the world. And so he says, I'm going to give myself. Jesus is the high priest, right? He is the one who can make atonement for you, who can sacrifice for your sins. He is the one who is qualified uniquely to be the high priest. And that's why that staff was in there. Jesus is the man of Jesus, the high priest. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He's the only person in the human race who ever perfectly fulfilled all 613 of God's commands. And he fills them completely. And that's why God gives him the prophetic name of Emmanuel, the presence of God. God with us is what that name means and so when you look at the picture of the ark you see that it's an illustration of Jesus now in the old testament the high priest would sacrifice a lamb and sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat oh it gets better sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat and now remember the mercy seat was the lid you had an angel at the head an angel at the foot and they leaned over and they would sprinkle the blood over the mercy seat right i wonder if Mary Magdalene knew what she was looking at, when in the Gospel of John, she gets to the tomb, and she looks in, and the slab that Jesus was laying on, probably still covered in his blood, is empty. There's no more body there, but what's there? The scripture says there's an angel at the head and an angel at the foot. And I wonder when she looked in if she realized it's the ark. It's God's ark. It's his presence for humanity. It's fulfilled in Jesus. See, God has provided a path to interact with his holiness. And that path is called the gospel. That path is called the good news of Jesus. God has provided a path for you to interact with him. God is holy. You can't stand in his holiness because of your selfishness, because of your pride, because of your lust, because of your greed, because of your fear. You can't come close to a holy God. But God's passion and love for you, his desire to share his love with you, has extended to you through Jesus Christ. That Jesus, God's son, 2,000 years ago, lived the, a life of a perfect man, was God's representative 
representative for humanity. In other words, what God did to him, God did for all. And so Jesus, just like a senator, would come and represent the people of a state, right? And they all vote, and that one senator represents everybody, right? In the same way, Jesus becomes the representative for the race of humanity. And he steps before God as a perfect representative, and then he takes the sin that you deserve to pay for. And on the cross, the scripture says that all the wrath of God, all the judgment of God, all the fury of God that struck Uzzah, all the wrath and justice and holiness of God gets emptied out on the shoulders of Jesus. And so he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time in scripture that Jesus refers to his father as my God because he's separated from his father. He calls him my God so that we can call him my father. He then exchanges places with us. All of my sin from the day I was born to the day I die gets emptied out on the shoulders of Jesus so that he can exchange with me his righteousness. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God. And so now all of my sin is placed upon Jesus. From the day I was born to the day I die, the sin I commit tomorrow already forgiven in Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus, the perfect, spotless, blameless perfection before God is given to me fully so that when the Father views me, he sees me perfect. That's the mystery of the gospel. That's the beauty of grace. This is the pathway in which God provides for the ark, God's presence to dwell in your capital, your heart. This is the pathway that God provides. That's why it says in Hebrews chapter 10, look at this. For by one offering, he has made perfect those who are being made holy. If you're a Christian here today, then you're being made holy day after day after day after day. You're being made holy, but God has already perfected you. He's already made you perfect, not in your deeds, in your stance with him. Now, your deeds will take a lifetime, and you'll never get there completely, but your stance before God is already perfect because he has fully forever forgiven you. Look how he does it in Hebrews 10. It tells us some more. It says, so, dear brothers and sisters, look at it. We can boldly, somebody say boldly. Come on, you got to get this today. We can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus sprinkled over the mercy seat. And by his death, Jesus opened a new and living way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest, there it is. He's the high priest who makes sacrifice for us, who rules over God's house. Let us go right into the presence of God, the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Would you stand to your feet today? Come on, stand to your feet. God wants to do something in your heart this morning. He wants to do something in your heart this morning. See, for many of us, you don't know intimacy with your creator. You don't know what it means to be close to God. You don't know because you haven't understood how he operates. And so you've been trying to interact with God in various ways, but you're not interacting with him based upon his pathway. And because you're not interacting with him based upon his pathway, all it's bringing for you is anger and fear. Anger and fear and anger and fear. You don't know the joy and the freedom of being all in. You don't know the joy and the freedom of being all in because you don't know what it feels like to be forever fully forgiven, accepted, adopted, loved. See, for many of us, we think that if we obey, God will accept us. Friend, you got it backwards. God accepts us in Christ, and that acceptance in the inside fuels obedience. It fuels obedience. 
the good news of Jesus. That's what gospel means, good news. The good news of Jesus is that he's already won for us. Religion says do, 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 do. But Jesus says done, 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 done. He says it's done. That's why on the cross he said it is finished. It is finished. And here's what I suggest. I suggest to you today that so much of our singing, so much of our worship, so much of our celebration is hindered because for many of us, we don't know how God operates. We're trying to Mickey Mouse some way to get to God. If I do enough stuff, if I go to church enough, if I give enough money to God, none of that makes you right before God. Religion will never get you there. Only Jesus gets you there. Only the gospel gets you there. Only his goodness towards you, something stirred in your heart right now, gets you there. God wants relationship with you. But you learn how he operates. And after you learn the beautiful good news of Jesus and his grace, you accept it. You turn from sin. You run to God and you press in just like David did. You press in. You say, God, I want more of you. God, I want to worship you. God, help my mind focus on you. God, help me celebrate you. And as you begin to press in based upon how God operates, you start to lose yourself. You start to lose yourself. And the reality of who God is gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the issues of your life get smaller and smaller and smaller. And you start to experience the freedom of flying. I'm flying. I'm flying. I'm flying. Would you pray with me this morning? Holy Spirit, would you come? As we sing to you, I pray that you teach us a new freedom right now. I pray as we meditate upon how you operate in Jesus' name, I pray that you would come upon us even right now. That, Lord, your spirit would begin to stir inside of us. That, God, your power would begin to stir inside of us. Lord, that your grace would begin to stir inside of us. Father, I pray you come right now. Begin to stir every heart. Lord, those that have been afraid to sing, those that have been afraid to lift their hands, those that are so self-conscious, God, those that are so concerned about themselves. God, those that are so worried about all the issues of life, those that come in with all the baggage and distractions of tomorrow. God, break it all off. Teach us, Lord Jesus, how you operate. Teach us how to press in. Teach us, Lord Jesus, how to lose ourselves in celebration of your grace. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, right now. We lift our hearts to you. We lift our lives to you. We lift our souls to you. For more information and resources, visit www.ourcitychurch.org.